Hello everyone, this is Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. And today I have with me Madan Sabnavis. Uh, Madan has written a fascinating book on the hits and misses of the Indian banking industry, which has been published by Sage. Madan has been a practicing corporate economist for 33 years. He's worked with ICICI, Larson and Tubro and is presently with Care Ratings as Chief Economist. Um, he's also written a bunch of other books on, on finance, economics, one of which I've read before, which is Economics of India, How to Fool All People for All Times. And, and I highly recommend that as well. Welcome to the show, Madan, and thank you so much for doing this. with. It's a pleasure being here, uh, Ayushi. So, Madan, I think I'll uh, start at the beginning and ask you, why did you think that a book like this was necessary when uh, in bits and pieces, of course, from time to time, you know, we all read these opinion pieces and thought pieces on the state of banking in India. What really made you want to condense it into a book? See, actually, I have also been commenting on uh, various banking issues time and on. And uh, very often we see that uh, there are new policies which are coming in. We see different reactions coming from industry. We see different reactions coming from the government. So I thought it would be a good idea to actually put all these uh, thoughts together and uh, bring out a book. So just talking of a book, uh, talking of uh, different uh, issues is one thing. And I thought maybe we can uh, make it a bit more comprehensive and look at what's been happening in the banking sector for the last 25 years or so, and also talk about certain facts. So therefore, what we see in this book are certain facts which have been interpreted in the form of trends, what come out from the banking trends. And then we're also talking of some of the issues which almost every reader would be familiar with and uh, try and engage the reader. You know, one of the things that I found very fascinating, you know, in, in terms of the blurbs, right, is, is uh, Sunil Jain, who is the managing editor at Financial Express, has said that you combine the skills of an economist with the speech of a journalist. And that is what makes this book so important. See, actually, uh, you know, Sunil, uh, I must admit that Sunil and I, we have been classmates in school as well as in college. So this, uh, it goes back a long time. And uh, ever since he took over as uh, editor of Financial Express, I think we got to know each other even better. Because, see, I, I, I've been writing in the, in the newspapers, articles on different issues, topical issues in particular. And I think what really gelled with uh, Sunil was the fact that if there was uh, a certain policy which was announced at, say, 5 p.m., I was able to give him exactly what a newspaper would like to have, a commentary in maybe around 800 to 1,000 words by 7 p.m. So I think that's what he really meant out here because he also found that I was fairly reliable and maybe what I wrote did make uh, sense. And uh, even though he did not agree most of the time with what I wrote, my view, but he was willing to accept that, yes, these are pertinent views, which the reader also needs to have. That, that's uh, actually a very, very interesting anecdote. And I think he was going through your Twitter account and I think your Twitter bio says that you've written over 2,000 articles uh, you know, the, the banking and financial space. And that was, uh, I mean, for, for most of us, right, who struggle to get a few pages together, that kind of consistency and volume, how do you do it? Well, it's actually a case, in my, in my profession of being an economist, we need to be in touch with uh, whatever is happening. 
And we also need to uh, develop views on uh, every development that takes place in the economic space. So keeping this in mind, it became a kind of a habit. You know, in, the, in, the, in the initial days, in the late 1980s, that's when I really started writing. It was uh, more a case of putting in a lot of effort to bring out those thousand words. And I remember some of my editors had told me very clearly that uh, to be successful in writing in newspapers, in fact, I would credit this with Swaminathan Nair, who was probably the first editor who took a chance in taking, a, in taking an article from me. He said, you have to convey everything in 800 to 1,000 words. Okay, so we normally tend to be a bit verbose when we talk about issues. We like to get into the background. We like to give our views and then try and give conclusions, give projections. But how do you put all this in a, in a format of 800,000 words? So that was, it used to be a bit of a challenge at that particular point of time. But then as you keep doing it, and I had very good editors who became my friends later on, who were giving me regular columns. So then it, be, it became a, it just became a part of me. And even today, I, I can say with uh, a lot of immodesty, if I would say, that use the right word, that I can actually bring out an article of 1,000 words or even 2,000 words, maybe an hour or two after any development has taken place. So it's become a kind of part of me. It's become a habit now. And that's how I've reached this uh, number of over 2,000 uh, publications. Wow. Let's get into the major place conversation, Madan, which is around your book. And, and your book, I think, um, for me, uh, one that is finishing reading it, right? I really struggle that what should be my first question to you. Because everything from NPAs to reserves um, to, you know, just from, say, the branch banking system, right? All of them are literally books in their own right as well. So I'll actually... Uh, begin at the beginning really and ask you to share with a lay person who's listening to this podcast on what are the circumstances around the Narsimhan committee uh, which is where the book really begins. Yeah, actually when I said in the beginning that I've tried to look at trends in banking in the last 25 years, the genesis is actually in the Narsimhan committee. See, the Narsimhan committee was something set up by the Reserve Bank of India in the early 1990s. So 91-92 is when the first report came out and subsequently there was a second version which came out towards the end of the decade. Now this is probably the most important uh, banking document in India and I would say it's remarkable because of the fact that in those days we did not have any internet but still the committee under uh, uh, Mr. Narsimham who was also the governor of the RBI for a brief period, he actually has encapsulated almost everything that we are talking of even today. So almost every reform in the banking sector, which is being discussed, which is being implemented today, actually has its genesis in the Narsimham Committee report. So they made out a template about what should ideally be done to bring it on lines with the global best practices. And accordingly, the Reserve Bank of India picked it up periodically and brought in whatever changes were required. And today what we are seeing is very much, I would say, the, the imprint of the Narsimha Committee is there in almost every policy which is being implemented. And I think that gives a lot of credit to uh, the Narsimha Committee. True. I think it, it really did sort of provide a strong foundation, right, uh, which has in a calibrated manner also ensured back then that there were no major shocks for the system, which is also very important in actually bringing out reforms at that level. My next question really is um, on the whole advent of private banks, right? And and what it meant. Now, in, in your book, right, you've brought out this difference between institution-driven banks, like ICICI or UBI became access, versus, say, bank 
owned by a corporate house like Hinduja, which is Indusind, um, or you know, bank. came or emanated from say institutions right or mbfcs what really do you think and while you've delved about it in the book for for the purpose of the listener journey what was the testimony of strength which which made some players stay and other players go so i would tend to think that uh, what is really required when you start a bank is a long term commitment So when you are set up by an institution like you've mentioned, we had ICICI Bank, we had Axis Bank, and we had IDBA Bank and HDFC Bank. You were actually set up by institutions which evidently had a very long-term uh, a vision in mind when they started uh, operating the banks. Whereas when you are talking in terms of uh, individual parties, when I say individual parties, could be an NBFC or any other private player, the same kind of commitment was probably not there. So, for example, if you're talking of certain banks, like say, twentieth uh, century finance was uh, an NBFC, a successful NBFC. We also had Times Bank, which was set up by the Benton Coleman Group. But these were the institutions which were actually uh, set up. Uh, did not really uh, manage to gather the kind of steam which was required. Did not really have the patience to wait for a longer period of time, and they were always searching for a buyer. So that's how we found that most of these banks got merged into other banks. They were purchased by the other banks and happened to be the institutional ones. And I think Indusind stands out because this was set up by an industrial group, the Hindujas, and they have shown their commitment, which is actually bearing fruit even today, where we see that it's one of the most successful banks. It also features, I think, in in both the and Sensex. Absolutely, it does. No, in fact, I think this book has come out. Uh, uh, it got published, uh, uh, rather, it went in for publication before the RBI very recently brought out a paper about uh, giving more license to banks. And there's been quite a bit of debate, controversy over whether corporate players should be allowed or not. So I think all this will actually resonate well because it has been addressed in the book about. Uh, What's really happened when we've had a whole series of banks which have come in? We've also seen something like Yes Bank, which was driven by a promoter, which hasn't quite uh, made it. Now, of course, it's gone into a different kind of a version of a bank being owned by other banks with SBI taking the lead. So, I think this will give a very back, a good backdrop to anyone who's trying to evaluate as to should we be having more uh, banks coming in? Should corporates be coming in? So, I go back to saying that what we really require is a long-term commitment because. banking is not a journey which can be taken in 3 4 5 years it's something which actually bears fruit maybe after 15 20 years i think one of the most interesting aspects of the book i think for me as a reader as well was when you touch upon the fact that banks were sort of visualized as monopolistic and in competition but they really ended up forming like an oligopolistic sector Absolutely, because uh, today, if you look at the way in which most of the policies, especially when it concerns individuals, interest rates are set, it does appear to be cartelization which takes place because there's really very little for one to distinguish between bank A and bank B, and we see that uh, most of the policies in terms of uh, deposits or in terms of lending always seem to be moving in the very same direction. So while we, the whole ethos behind getting in more banks was to bring in more competition. it's definitely brought in a lot of new products maybe technology is something which has benefited all customers both on the borrowing as well as the lending sides but uh, at the end of the day if you look back and say you'll say that are we actually getting competitive interest rates as a deposit holder the answer is probably not almost you want you don't want to go to bank a because again you're low interest rate go to b it's probably the same kind of uh, interest which you get 
So I think that, that's something which one should really think of when you're talking of getting in more banks, but it will actually bring about differentiation or will it just be more with the name and maybe there are certain kind of additional services like what the private sector banks do, do provide to the customers. That, that's certainly food for thought. And, um, you know, this whole uh, growth in terms of just the numbers of institutions, right, versus reach. So, again, in the book, you touch upon um, how it, it never made business sense, right, to actually penetrate to rural India because that's not where the money was. And, and say, foreign banks steered away from it. And patterns of branch banking, etc., cetera, um, also uh, morphed along where there were business opportunities. And, and it makes complete commercial sense that banks would open their, um, their branches where the money is, even after all these stipulations that were imposed. What do you think is the role of technology? And, and now, with mobile penetration and data consumption in India being what it is, how do you see this rural versus urban um, uh, really converging? Does it converge in terms of services, in terms of products? How how do you see this change? If you do see a change. See, see, I should get two parts to it. See, one is we're talking in terms of technology and second, we're talking in terms of branch banking. Now, I think Successive regimes at the government level as well as in the Reserve Bank have been focusing a lot on inclusive banking, which means that we want to have everybody having an access to a bank account, which means that you need to have a branch. So I think this pressure has been more on public sector banks, which have been expanding and setting up branches in almost every corner of the country. Now, the fact is also that uh, people in the rural areas or even the semi-urban areas, depending upon their income levels, don't really have much money to save. So merely having a branch in a village for the sake of having a branch does not make commercial sense for a bank. So ideally, they would not like to have a branch, but you're forced to have the branch because you're a public sector bank. So I think that's how the, the entire branching, uh, the branch policies of banks has evolved. And that's why we have so many branches in the country. And the whole question is that do we actually require all these branches? The answer is probably no. But this brings in the issue, the second issue which you raised with technology. Think with the spread of technology, and I think people are becoming more and more uh, savvier right now because we, we have a case of uh, people getting into mobile banking. Almost everybody has a mobile handset, even a poor person has it. So I think there is a kind of a transformation which is taking place where people, even with the limited amount of money which you have, you're able to do your banking transactions using technology and you do not really go to the physical branch. Well, it may be a bit too premature to say that the branches may not exist in the rural areas at some point of time, but I think gradually as the habit picks up, we may see that it may be less expedient for banks to have branches everywhere. When technology is able to take over, you will be able to cut down on costs and probably also provide speedier services. How does this impact manpower? With centralization and digitalization, uh, and, and this has been uh, something that's often been spoken of in terms of the banking sector, employing people or uh, employing people across the lines and the breadth of the I think talks around this really even with when computers were first introduced into the Indian banking system. But what are the kinds of impacts that we, we might see, say, 
bank employees so what we have seen in the banking so see the banks are definitely one of the largest employers in the services sector i think it comes probably after the it sector but we have also seen that over the years public sector banks have been more parsimonious in terms of adding to staff and what they've really done is that the certain level of staff at the lower levels if you look at the pms you look at clerks i think they're the ones whom they have not replaced and what they've added to have been more people in the in the officer category so i think therefore we've seen that if you look at the growth in the number of staff the staff count for public sector banks it's definitely been more moderate it's actually been coming down the growth rate but if i look at the private sector banks i think they they have tended to be hiring more people so this is quite a kind of an ironical situation which we have because we normally associate anything to do with the government public sector to be but today we have a situation where the public sector banks have actually been using using technology more aggressively and therefore there's less requirement for having the support staff which we are seeing in terms of the numbers however if you look at the private sector banks i think they have changed the strategy a little bit they are trying to go more aggressively into the non metropolitan non urban areas and therefore they are they are hiring a larger amount of staff so that's how we are seeing that their headcount has actually been increasing over the years as they are penetrating new markets and trying to get their share of the of the customers wallet actually you know one of the most interesting pieces of the book for me was that public sector employees are actually receive a higher compensation than the private sector bank employee which uh, i don't know for some reason i assumed and maybe other people assume like me uh, that it would be the other way around because there is a perception of the of the psb employee being poorly compensated compared to the private sector employee but that's not the case No, absolutely. This came as a revelation to me actually when I looked at the data, because it's a very crude way of finding out what is the average compensation. You look at what is the total salary bill of uh, of the banks, and you divide it by the total amount of headcount. So therefore, you get to know what is the average salary. So it tells you broadly speaking, this is what the average salary in a particular segment is. Now, the interesting part is there's also another chapter later on where I'm talking in terms of the compensation for the CEOs. Now, there, if you see, there's been a very wide variation between what the ceo of a public sector bank earns and what the ceo of a private sector bank earns so the the truth actually is that if you're looking at private sector banks they don't pay everybody the same amount but as you move higher up in hierarchy you tend to be earning disproportionately higher salaries so if you look at the standard metric which is normally used to talk about how uh, tilted are the salaries you look at what's a salary of the top person to the median salary you'll see that particular ratio seems to be very much higher for the private sector banks compared to the public sector banks public sector bank i think the dispersion across the median would be very much limited it would be very much under control one of the things that i think what what i'd like to sort of tell people who'll be picking up the book and reading the book is that they will get such revelations i think throughout the book it's very interesting right because for uh, because you have these uh, either broad assumptions right or you read newspaper articles from time to time or you skim through business pages for for most average readers right people who say do not work really in the finance or the in really you know at the in the brass tacks of the industry but 
all of these perceptions on private bank performance versus PSB performance uh, was one of the most interesting aspects for the from the book for me. Because, for instance, I think you say that the pace of growth is actually not unimpressive because PSBs are doing a CAGR of almost 15% in a comparison that you draw between uh, 95 and 2019. Uh, which, again, and then you, you also compare... Uh, both you compare efficiencies and and to me that was interesting because a lot of perception is around um, PSB is not being able to deliver and of course this coexists with like a yes bank as well so I'm not saying that that it's like a black and white in the first place but even in that zone of grey PSBs are not as grey as the public imagination of them to be when juxtaposed against private banks. In fact, everyone's in similar murky waters. No, that's true, because I think what you spoke of is the right thing. It's about uh, perception. So the perception which a common man gets is from what you uh, read in the newspapers, what you see on television channels. And that's how you pick up things like saying that, look, public sector banks. So we, we hear of, say, for example, the unions of public sector banks going on strike. But the private sector banks are not part of the union, so therefore you don't hear about strike. So therefore, you feel that the public sector bank employees are not being paid that well because somebody is protesting somewhere, whereas we don't see this happening in terms of the private sector banks. So therefore, we tend to miss, miss on that. Similarly, when you're looking in terms of uh, performance, we tend to believe that, okay, this public sector bank A or public sector bank B, which is in deep trouble, the government is trying to bail it out. So therefore, we feel that, look, use the same brush and say that, look, all public sector banks have a problem out there. But it's actually not a, it's not a case. And this, again, I would say was a revelation as I kept going through the data, doing these comparisons, seeing what's been happening over the last 20, 25 years. Then you suddenly realize that the public sector banks have actually covered a lot of ground. They are comparable to those. Some of them are comparable to those of the private sector banks. Just like, as you mentioned, we've also had cases like Yes Bank. So not all private sector banks are equally as efficient as the other ones. But... On an average, yes, they may be marginally above those of some of the best public sector banks, but definitely the gap between the two sets of banks has been narrowed down in the last two decades or so. And I think this whole comparison, of course, you have touched extensively. I think chapter 10 is when you talk about the NPA conundrum and the asset quality recognition um, order which was passed in 2016. What is this fear psychosis, right, that that spread with bankers um you know um, and they became averse to decision making during this time between six, 2016 to 2019 really when rbi came down heavily on banks for misstating their npa levels I, I actually leave it to you to sort of contextualize it i've read about it and i don't want to and and it's something that's well known but I think the beauty of the book really, Madan, for me at least, was that it simultaneously works as almost like a Wikipedia broad summary and at the same time a detailed analysis, but it's also very impartial. So I think kudos to you for actually pulling this off. And I'm sorry if I digressed and I just felt that this is the right moment to say this. But, but really, what it is... Uh, what really led to that piece in 2016 to 19 and RBI coming down so heavily? Was it was it really about leadership at the helm, or or was it just something that would have anyway been done at some point of time? 
Okay, first, uh, Ayesha, I'd like to uh, thank you for the kind words which you have uttered. Now, saying that, I would say that, uh, see, this entire process of NPAs was a creation of something which happened in the earlier part of the decade. You know, there was, we had the Lehman crisis. After that, there was a tendency for uh, banks to keep lending a lot of money to industry. So when I say lending money, it happened because interest rates were lowered by the Reserve Bank of India. The government on its side was also going in for a fiscal stimulus. So there was a lot of money available to make sure that the economy continued to grow. So at that particular point of time, there were definitely a certain amount of gov uh, governance lapses. So that's something also which I've highlighted in a couple of places in the book about the governance lapses. Now, the governance lapses tended to be more in the public sector banks because there was a lot of political interference where there were instructions which came from the top to say that you should lend to the steel sector, you should lend to the power sector. So as these loans turned out to be dodgy, that is when the problems really took place. Now, in between, we had a concept where uh, we called something CDR, Corporate Debt Restructuring. So it was felt that, let me give an example to make it easier for the listeners, that I've set up a steel plant and I took money in 2010, 2011. But somewhere along the way, we had all those scams which came in. Okay, Now we had a scam in the coal area. So therefore, there was a problem in terms of acquiring coal. There was a mining scam which was there down south. So therefore, iron ore getting iron ore was a problem. So therefore, as a steel company, the, the problem was that I could not continue my project because I was not getting my basic raw materials. So therefore, I became an NPA. Now, in the wisdom, the Reserve Bank of India, along with the bankers and the government, everybody agreed that the fault was not with me because I was not repaying my loan. I had a genuine problem because of certain institutionalized scams which happened, which they called uh, the irregularities in various uh, natural resources. My project got affected. So therefore, let us not call it an NBA, we call it a restructured asset. So accordingly, we had a corporate debt restructuring cell, which said that, look, instead of repaying the money now, you repay it after another five years. Instead of paying an interest rate of 15%, you pay 12%. So accordingly, the loans were restructured. So this is not shown the papers, we showed low NPAs. Then at some point of time, the Reserve Bank of India got up. I think Dr. Raghuram Rajan was the governor. He said that we need to have a fair assessment of the quality of assets. And therefore, there was this AQR concept, which came asset quality. And the moment you went in for this reassessment of your NPAs, we suddenly realized that the numbers started going up. And as the numbers started going up, I think the heads of public sector banks were under the scanner. Then there were lots of inquiries which came about saying, why did you lend to this particular steel company? Why did you lend to this particular power company? So accordingly, there was this fear psychosis which came in, which actually led to bankers becoming very, very conservative. Now, since public sector banks are under public scrutiny, you have the CAG, the CIC, all the investigative, CBI, all these investigative agencies can come after me. However, if I'm in a private sector bank, we don't have the same fear. So therefore, most of the problems in terms of the NPAs in terms of these uh, infrastructure sectors which were involved in the NPAs were all things which came into the open because of the fact that there were public sector banks. And that's what created this problem of, uh, of lending. Bankers were refusing to take decisions. And in this process, the private sector banks were able to speed up and, and gather a larger part of the market share. And um, also, how do you see uh, you know, I mean, now that we've had the whole pandemic, right? And do you see how the NPA issue going to 
say dominate headlines or do you think that it th- that because of this whole the moratoriums that were provided to borrowers i mean it, it's futuristic and I'm, i should really not be asking you for anything predictive that's not in the book but but how do you probably see the impact of this pandemic in in terms of of this slide no in fact i think that uh, the pandemic has led the reserve bank of india and the government to become more flexible in terms of npa recognition and as as you have mentioned there was a moratorium also which has been given and uh, the rbi data showed that uh, in as of april normally around 50% of the borrowers 50% of the total value of debt was actually came under the moratorium people had opted for it so now the question is that at some point of time when we go back to normalization so even today for example if i'm not servicing my loan i'm not going to be called an npa because rbi has said that up to march uh, 2021 i will the npa norms have all been relaxed but at some point of time when the normalization takes place my sense is that there will be a tendency for the npa numbers to once again balloon so i think this is a legitimate threat which is there i think the rbi is also aware of it the bankers are also aware, aware of it because if you look at most of the bankers uh, presentations they have already started making provisions for the npas which are not there today so i think that's a good step so hopefully we may not see the ghastly numbers of 15 20% for banks but definitely from the 8% levels which were recorded as of september we could be expecting this number to go up to something like 12 or 13% i think that's such a valuable opinion and and, and it, it's also one of those how time uh, you know unfolds and, and what we see happen one of the uh, questions that i had and and this is personal curiosity and not really for the book so much is, is that do you see yourself as an economist a banker a writer considering you wear so many hats um what what uh, really calls out to you the most or what do you find most interesting or challenging or or, or is it all the same uh, once once you've been at so many things for so long no actually i think the thing is that i look at myself as being uh, an economist or i try hard to be an economist and i take a view of an economist on all these issues so my experience in working in icic bank which is of course a long time back actually gave me a kind of a real view about what happens in the banking sector what happens in the bank how are decisions taken what is an interest rate otherwise i've always had a view about what interest rates are from the point of view of being an economist so that's what i see by looking at as an economist you're actually able to take a macro view a broader view of things and more importantly the way economists normally tend to look at any issue is that we i mean in the way lots of people keep saying that economists don't take a view because they always say on one hand and on the other hand but i think nothing is actually very clear on paper there are always certain pros and cons so what we do is the way i analyze things is to look at the pros and cons of everything and then probably pass some kind of a judgment so as far as the readers concerned in the book i think for any particular issue i've actually given views of saying that why it is so why it should not be so and instead of just sitting back and saying okay i'm not giving a final view i do of course pitch for saying that i would rather go in for one of the two views based on the balance like for example when we are talking of the tenure of the rbi governor so there's been a lot of debate about whether it should be 3 years or 5 years or if a governor is not given an extension beyond 3 years there's a lot of noise made about it so you actually say why should it be 3 why should it not be 3 and then you finally say that look we need to have a fixed tenure and let there be no more extensions 
even if we're talking of the, the tenures of CEOs of private sector banks, I've done the same thing saying what are the negatives which happen when you have the same person who's ruling for say 10, 15, 20 years and getting in fresh blood, what difference does it make? And finally say that, okay, we have two sides, uh, sets of views and this is what I'm pitching for. So as an economist, I think we're able to take a more balanced view, even though at times one may feel that we're not actually uh, sticking our necks out by saying on one hand and on the other hand. No, thank you so much for that answer. I, the next question that I have uh, for you, Madan, is that while, you know, there is obviously this balance of views, um, how about external influences, right? And banking is so politically interlinked, right? Of course, it impacts the lives of people. It makes a difference everywhere, right? From loan waivers to farmers to all of i mean of course unlike say capital markets or 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 a sebi and rbi is obviously woven into uh, it's the basis of our economy right unlike say capital markets regulation which again came and, and regimented only say in, in the 90s right bank banks have been there forever so how do you the role of political influence or, or changes in political contestants or leadership from time to time uh, and how has that benefited or uh, not benefited what have been the hits and misses in terms of how banking interfaces uh, with governance and, and, and political influence today is, is what I was uh, asking See, the, 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 if you're talking in terms of uh, government, I think the government has always tried to use the banking sector as a means to carry out a political agenda. Now, this holds for all kinds of governments, now, whether it's the UPA government or whether it's the NDA government. So you have a certain scheme which works well at the political level, and then you make sure that it has to be carried out by the banking system. Now, how do you do it? You have little control over the private sector banks, so therefore you do it over the public sector banks. And how do you get the public sector banks to do it? That is where we say that even I'm the owner of a public sector bank, so therefore I can do whatever I want to with the public sector bank. So right from the point, from the point of view of the appointments which are there, both for the directors as well as in terms of the management, everything seems to be appointed by the government. So that's how you actually take full control over one particular segment of the banking sector. I'm not saying it's a right thing or a wrong thing because as an owner of a bank, you have a right to decide about who should be governing the bank. But, but in terms of making sure that certain agenda is being carried out, which may not be profitable, which may not be viable, that is where I have a problem with it. Okay, So if you're forcing them to lend to a certain sector, I think that is not something which should be done by the government. For example, sometime back, I think a couple of years back, we had one of the, one of the politicians actually saying that if a public sector bank uh, branch manager does not lend money of, uh, to a certain segment, then that person will not be getting his increment for the year. Now, that is not the way in which we do banking, but that's where you are forcing people to take decisions which may not be, uh, let's say, economically relevant. And finally, at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, then you'll run into a problem of saying an inquiry coming in and you know, what we spoke about, the investigative agencies. So this is something which we should try and keep away from. And to the credit of uh, this government, I think they have said it that uh, off and on that they have stopped this uh, this business of phone banking where somebody calls you up and tells you give a loan to this person or don't give a loan to someone. But we've still seen that in terms of carrying out any policy of the government, we still use bank banks as the medium, which ideally should not be done. 
that brings me to the next question which is and, and i think you allude to this towards the later part of your book madan which is uh, whether rbi should hold reserves transfer them to the government you know and and what happens with the anomaly of that part of the balance sheet of the rbi that gets created due to the central bank holding on to government securities right um, and we've had a lot of conversation uh, a few months back right around this whole transfer issue so what what's your take really on this while i read it in the book but i genuinely think it's something that could be very fascinating for the listeners Yeah. See, the thing is that uh, the Reserve Bank of India, for all practical purposes, is actually owned by the government of India. So, therefore, any kind of a surplus which comes from the Reserve Bank of India's uh, operations in a particular year will have to be transferred to the government, which is a fair enough thing. Now, a couple of years back, it so happened that uh, the government felt that they could take a part of the reserves of the RBI because the RBI, actually, as a central bank, has the power to create money. they create money not just in terms of currency but they could also be issuing uh, they could be buying up government paper from the banks so accordingly you you print currency for it and that's how you create a huge balance sheet now is it a right thing to actually say that if my balance sheet size is 100 that we work out a way to say that the rbi did not keep 100 as a balance sheet it can do with say 90 and then i say that this 10 which is there it can be transferred to the government Now, I think the messaging which was sent was probably where the problem was, because it was a time when the government's fiscal numbers were under pressure. It did look like that there would be a major fiscal slippage. So, therefore, the timing of such an act gave the feeling that the government wanted the reserves of the RBI in order to shore up its budgetary balances. So, I think that's where the controversy came. If it was probably done maybe after another two or three years when everything was normal, it wouldn't have created the same noise. But one should remember that once you do it. it's only a one time exercise because now you there's, there's no possibility of transferring any more reserves because everything that is earned by the reserve bank of india in the form of a surplus will be transferred to the government by statute anyway so i think this one time use of it was probably there was it, it was fairly unusual and as i told you it gives the wrong kind of signals to the market saying that the government is desperate to get money so we're trying to get into the reserve bank of india's balance sheet but i think it cannot be done too often so probably it was something which a prerogative which the government used once they had set up an expert committee so nobody can really have any dispute over that it was dr bimal jalan who had who had uh, chaired the committee and he had come to this conclusion that a certain amount based on certain prudent uh, 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 ratios were able to were, were led to this transfer which took place to the government but yeah we are done with it now but ideally i would have uh, said that we should not be doing such things because the reserve bank of india's balance sheet is not a real balance sheet because it just has the power to create money whenever it wants to thank you so much and i think before we wrap up this conversation one last question to you what are a few books um, that you would recommend apart from your own uh, to perhaps understand india better or Uh, our economic structure who are some of your favorite writers well, in fact uh, i think we've seen some uh, fairly remarkable books and i would not be since you've caught me slightly off guard i can probably give you the name of the authors rather than books because i would not be uh, remembering them but i think we've seen some uh, very good uh, uh, views which have been given by dr virala charya this book which came out recently I also like the one from a journalist coming Tamil Bandopadhyay. I think he's written something on banking. He's specialized in banking, 
and as a journalist he can take more liberties than i can like like in a sense he can take names of people which i cannot take because i'm still in the in in, in the business of uh, in the financial sector so i cannot take these liberties but definitely tamil has been more open and vocal in terms of uh, his critique so i think tamil bandhupadhyay's books on banking the one which came out recently i think that's something which one should be looking at and uh, we've seen certain uh, other good books coming from uh, people like dr rakesh mohan was the ex deputy governor of rpi i think uh, he has fairly insightful books on uh, on this particular subject so i think there there there, there are lots of uh, thing lots of books on the, on on banking which which are there and uh, again i would just like to say that what i try to do out here is to try and simplify things and uh, keep the chapters short so that uh, you don't doze off when you're reading it and can convey everything that is uh, required in maybe instead of 1000 words i kept maybe 2000 3000 words actually i think tamil's book is pandemonium right the great indianity which which i've read so i think i can and say it for the listeners and i think dr viral acharya has written a uh, um, quest for restoring financial stability in india if i'm not mistaken uh, of of my head um, but but thank you so much you know madan um, i i can tell you that i last worked in a bank many many years ago and i studied economics even uh, before that but i did not doze off i could read the couple of very comfortable sittings and i learned a lot in the process and i hope to everyone who's listening to this podcast um, that they do realize that they can learn a lot please go buy the book from amazon flipkart um, check it out online it's available everywhere um, the book is also a great book to gift to someone you know who's studying uh, finance or aspiring to be a chartered accountant an economist or, or just someone generally curious about banking and and the indian economy uh, once again thank you so much madan for doing this podcast and being on the show so thanks for having me here